listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio with Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, thank you for joining us and thank you for listening in. I always worried growing up that we lacked heroes because it seemed to me I was fascinated by World War II as a young boy and, you know, I loved the heroes, Charlie Upham especially. And just that bravery and sacrifice for others. And I felt we were living in a world without heroes, but I realized looking back, almost every man I saw and every woman I saw was a hero in their way um, for what they did and how they behaved. But through this COVID hysteria and total madness, I saw real heroes and braver, braver than anything I could do. And we've interviewed some of them. I'm thinking of like Steve Oliver, who just stood up to what was wrong. And I knew it was wrong, but I wasn't that brave to stand up and take the cost and the sacrifice. And what we've got, who we've got now to interview and spend time with, to me is the hero of heroes, a goddess to me, because almost so many heroes and leaders have emerged that this lady stands above them all. And I'm not alone in thinking that because I was fortunate enough to go to a Voices for Freedom dinner and they invited some of the heroes onto the stage and they all got a great round of applause. But when Linda Wharton stood up on the stage, everyone stood up and clapped and no one wanted to sit down. Such is the esteem that Linda Wharton has held it by people who know what she's done. And we're going to get through this and we're going to emerge from this a civil society and stronger and there will be stories told and movies made. And big in the movie will be Linda Wharton as a true hero. Just like we see in the darkest times of World War II, people emerging and giving everything of themselves to save people and to save total strangers. And... It's my great pleasure to invite Linda Wharton onto a reality check radio and real talk with Rodney Hyde. Linda, good morning. Good morning, Rodney. And I think it's fair to say never in my life have I had an introduction like that. And I'm not sure it's a good thing to start an interview where your guest feels like crying. <laughs> that well, was um, what an interview. Thank you so much. Well, I'm sure I speak for all our listeners when I can't even find the words to express my admiration for you and, and what you do. It's a mark of someone very special when you see a little bit of what they do and to know that you don't have the strength or capacity yourself to do it because um, I talk to vaccine-injured people, and I find it so upsetting 
and so making me so angry and so distressed and so powerless to do anything to genuinely help. I can be a sympathetic ear, but you're much more than that. And that's what we're going to cover today. But truly, Linda, I meant every word. And I love your Twitter now that we're back on Twitter. Thanks, Elon Musk. You oh, are amazing. isn't it wonderful? I'm loving being over there, honestly. I love being, I love my Twitter. Twitter now is my news. And yeah. I, I prefer it to every other newspaper that I can access. I loved you on Telegram. Um, you're a huge resource and um, the support that you've given. I, I, I move around a bit in New Zealand and I constantly meet people that you've directly helped and people through your stance have inspired. So I, I, I genuinely mean that. I don't want this to become gushing and about me, but I wanted to introduce you properly. Thank um, you, Rodney. And what I'd like to do today, with your permission, is to learn, first of all, about Linda. I've dropped ah. that on you, haven't I? Ah, that's a surprise. Nobody's ever really started by asking me about me. Where were you born? So I was actually born in a little town about 12 miles outside of Leeds in Yorkshire, a little place called Garforth. So my mum and dad were both born and raised in Garforth, um, and I was born there. But then we didn't actually live there because my dad then started basically a lifetime of working with um, in the military, first in the Navy, then in, then in the Army. And so I left Garforth when I was a year old and grandparents still lived there. So throughout throughout my early life, we, we repeatedly went back, but I didn't grow up there. I grew, I grew up in a very nomadic lifestyle until I was 16 and we moved to New Zealand when um, my dad was posted all over UK, Singapore, Hong Kong, and then finally we settled in New Zealand and he swapped across to the New Zealand Army. So in the British Army, what did he do? Oh, uh, good question. I, I'm not sure what he did exactly in my oh, early that sounds years exciting. When, I was, when I was growing up. I know when we lived was in he a Singapore. Spy? No, nothing, nothing so exciting. I know when we lived in Singapore for nearly four years, three and a half years, he was in charge. This is not 007 stuff, but somebody you know, an important job. He was in charge of all the school buses on the island that there were, and all the staff that ran the school buses for all of the military and forces people that were living in Singapore, mm. hundred and something school buses. So he was in land transport command in Singapore. Mm. Well, armies run on logistics. War yeah. the one with logistics. Um, and so you grew up, did you go to international schools? What what schools did you go to? Yeah, I was an unusual army child because most of the other, the vast majority of army families actually put their children in boarding school. Mm. I believe the army paid for that. And my parents didn't want to do that. They they kind of thought, what's the point of having a child that you never see, you know, that is away at school all the time. So mum and dad kept me with them and my brother. And uh, I once went to an international school, and that was in Singapore. I, mm. I did, and I loved going to the international school. It was wonderful. What years were you in Singapore? I was there from 
10 years old until I was about 13 and a half, I think, when we left. Is it rude to ask what year that was? Oh, uh, no, not not rude at all. So 10, 10 years old, that would have been 1971. Okay. Yeah, born, I was born in 61. Um, and you, the, you must go then back to, is it Garfield? How big is Garfield? Garfield. Garfield. Yeah. Never heard of it. I know. No, Garfield. How think... big? How many people live in Garfield? Um, I have got no idea. And to be honest with you, I haven't been there since I was 21. That was the okay. last time I was in England. So 40, 40 years ago since I was in England. Wow. Um, but it I'm... must have been funny when you went back when you were 21, because I imagine them all having these accents. Oh, um, yes. <laughs> them being very insular. And um, living the life and walking down to the pub. And there you are, having lived all over the world in some, to anyone, let alone a young child, a very, very exciting, exotic places. Mm. And you must have gone back at 21 to Yorkshire and been sort of quite shocked because you wouldn't, you wouldn't, they, you're no longer, you're, you're, you, you have this wonderful, like, international bbc you talk i've got a neutral accent that's right a very well actually no when i go back to england everybody there tells me as i said i was only 21 but they were all oh you've got such a strong new zealand accent and that funny when i'm in new zealand people say oh well you come from england do you that you say some words differently do you come from england so So you would you you had a an amazing childhood i did i had I had a I had a wonderfully exciting childhood, but honestly, Rodney, um, I can actually understand why the British Army pays for children to go to boarding school, <clears throat> because while it sounds really exciting, depending on your temperament as a child, it's also incredibly challenging. So I've always been a fairly sensitive soul, mm. and so that process of putting down roots forming relationships with other children, friendships, you know, feeling at home in a school. And then often after two years, you're on to the next place and, you know, all of that's gone and you have to start from scratch again, making as the strange child walking into the school. Um, And so while it's actually left, left me with a legacy of never being able to settle in any one place for terribly long, I'm still a nomad. Um, I, I remember crying a lot as a child. Yes. I've been surprised um, with my children, the oldest being 11. It's literally taking them two years as we've arrived in Arrowtown to establish themselves in their friendships at a school. Two years. Yeah, and it does. It's not I an had, overnight thing. I had never appreciated that. Um because I grew up and went to, you know, stayed in the same valley of whatever that name of that place is you come from. <laughs> Garfield. Garfield. <laughs> um, I got Garfield, the cartoon in my mind. <laughs> Big yellow cat. <laughs> yeah, Garfield. Um, I stay. I grew up in Rangura, and I sort of went to Rangura Primary School and went to um, Rangura High School, and that was sort of it. And so I have no appreciation of what it is as a young person to have to enter a new school um and so i dimly 
can perceive that because my kids turned up to a new school and I just thought they'd slot in given their personalities, but they didn't. Mm. And uh, I can see it making such a transformative difference as they build up their friendships and get to understand because you walk into a school and all the friendships are there, right? Yep. That's right. It's not like, it's not like if you live in one place and you move, you transition to a new classroom or you move up a year in your school, you're within, you're already enmeshed within a Mm. cohesive group that moves with you. Mm. Whereas when you just, you know, fall out of space into a new school, it, often in the middle of a school year, yes. um, you're the only new child yes. to start that school and all yes. the relationships are already made around you. It seems to me, I notice it with girls, the two girls I have, and my wife keeps explaining to me this, how important it is. They're very, very clicky with friends. Yes, and Very this big. is my friends and who's my friend. And there are groups of friends and it's sort of a little bit disgusting to me because it's very much who's friends with whom and like very tribal. Yeah. It, it's interesting. You say that, that when I think back about the biggest challenges of fitting in, I think the one that really stands out for me was when we emigrated from UK to New Zealand and I was just about to turn 16. And so I came from a fairly Victoriana English girls grammar school in Salisbury in Wiltshire. So you can kind of picture all that with a very formal you know, green blazer and the whole Victoriana thing going on. I came from that to Palmerston North Girls High School. And it was the most immense culture shock you can imagine. Because? um, Well, because a number of things, things like, just on a broader scale, the culture shock was things like arriving in Palmerston North in the winter, freezing cold, frost everywhere, children and adults walking around with shorts on and no shoes. Kids used to come to school with no shoes on in the winter. Um, I'd never seen that in my life. I'd never seen grown men walking around in shorts, let alone in the middle of winter. Um, And then within the school itself, I I think fair to say that... um, the girls were quite different to the way I'd been brought up. They were good Kiwi girls that could do anything and they were quite uh, strong, physically strong and, you know, playing rugby and it, w- it was all very alien to me. Wow, isn't that fascinating? And, of course, back then, um, I was at high school in the 70s, so this would be uh, 77, 78, yeah, is it? Yeah. yeah, well, I, I left high school in 74. But I can remember these, it was literally a hatred for English immigrants running right through New Zealand at that time. And a radio station while I was at high school ran a sort of punch upon a day campaign. Wow, I'm glad I didn't know about that. No, and um, it was foisted a bit by the Prime Minister of the day, uh, Sir Robert Muldoon, 
and the fact that the unions held a huge sway and the union leaders were often English with a thick, you know, brogue. And yep. of course, they'd shut the ferries down and upset us. And so it was sort of that and then just difference. And then and then to the extent that we became anti-immigrant, it became, you know, Cambodians and Vietnamese. But it wasn't nice. And so I can imagine a kid turning up to high school not being readily accepted and then having that cultural difference. Yeah, I used to. Um, I I didn't get I didn't get warmly invited in. None of the girls sort of invited no. me into their clique. So um I I used to face the horror in that age group, the horror of, you know, of lunchtime coming. Go, we all have, were turfed out into the playground and basically not having, just being on my own, not having anybody to be with and, and nobody inviting me into the, the groups. So often I would eat my lunch and then I'd actually go sit in the toilet with the door locked, just mm. sort of hide from it all. How you know, sad because, is that? Yeah, well, you just feel like such a leper and an outcast as a teenager, not, not being in a group where all around you people are grouped and you're just sitting there on your own eating your sandwiches. Yeah. When you look back at that, what would you have liked to have happened? Like, oh. given the girls are girls and they're going to do what they're going to do, what what could a teacher or a parent like me have done to help, you think? Well, I guess, um, uh, well, I guess a teacher could have asked somebody to be sort of a mentor for me, you mm. know, to 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 stick with me to introduce me to their friends uh, maybe to spend lunchtime with me because you sort of think that I mean that's such a simple thing right yeah I wonder yeah I, and I'm I, sure now I, I'm sure children coming into or young teenagers coming into New Zealand now probably that's standard practice within a school mm. um, but it wasn't in Palmerston North in the 70s it, it wasn't like that the, so when I was asking you about what a parent should do, um, I was genuine because, you know, we all have situations where kids are a bit uncomfortable. And in a way, kids have got to go through it and they've got to learn to socialize and overcome these difficulties without mum or dad hovering over them. And I feel that in part with my son. But at the same time, um, he feels this rather strongly. So much so, I'm actually wondering about um, taking him to Sunday school. Yeah. Because he just has this absolute fascination we went we walked the milford track um a month ago which i was a bit worried about with so the I, children all of you yes and oh, not, fantastic. I, well i thought the kids might have to carry me up the hill right <laughs> i was thinking about you carrying them rodney not the no, other way around but no, did you my, all make it under your own power we all made it under our own power and and the kids were very polite waiting for dad to puff and puff along <laughs> um but we got off the boat. You get off the boat. And it's a beautiful walk. I just couldn't believe how wonderful it was. I just loved every minute of it. And so too the kids. And you take them for a walk for two hours and they're sick of it, right? But they loved yes. every minute of this walk, the rain, the cold, the views. We had a great, great time. But we got off the boat and he started talking God and theology. And we had four days. He didn't stop unless he was asleep. Oh, my goodness. Maybe you're... Maybe your son has come in with a calling that's going to yes. turn him and into so much so theologian or a pastor or something. So much so that we had to take turns walking beside him. 
because you get so sick of it. You got burnt out. And like this, as sisters had to have half an hour walking with them. And um, we then decided, Lou and I, that we'd put them on a guided talk if we ever did it again, and the guides <laughs> could suffer it. Um, but such so fascinating because you say, oh, well, you know, does God know Santa? You know, oh. um, how do they get along? And you're sort of saying, well, God's bigger than Santa. Oh, really? And then he would say, he did this great one. Honestly, I wish I'd recorded it. It was so cute. He'd say, well, how come God, who could do anything, hasn't given me superpowers? And I say, he has. He says, what's that? I said, well, you can think, you can see, you've got mm. this beautiful world around you, you can read, you can write, you can talk to people. That's superpowers. And he says, yeah, but I mean, shoot lightning out of my fingers. <laughs> you think if I asked God, could I shoot lightning out of my fingers? Um, he would do that for me. And I said, oh, I think you've got enough. You've got all the Oh, he sounds delightful. When you I, and, then, and then the other great one was, he said, um, when I get to heaven, do you think granddad will recognize me? Mm. And I said, Don't they ask great questions? Great Honestly, questions. so uncensored. And so many of the questions actually make perfect sense. Yes. And of course, he's quite right about this prancing around during the Mary dance. It's not him. It's not who he is, you know, but he's forced to do it. And I mean, I look back on it and I remember we had to do folk dancing, which I hated because I couldn't do. But it wasn't a political thing like this has become. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway, enough of that. So you got through high school, and then what happened? So I got through high school, and when I was at high school, I realised that, well, when I was at high school, I decided that I wanted to be a journalist. I've always loved writing. Good for you. And and I wanted to be my idealized version of a journalist. I didn't understand. I was young. I didn't understand. I'm very relieved now that I'm not part of mainstream media, might I add. But back then, in my idealized version, I wanted to tell people stories, interestingly. I wanted to really get to know people and, and find the essence of who they were and, and share their stories. Of course, if I had become a journalist, I probably wouldn't have ended up doing that. I'd have been on some, you know, rotor in in a newspaper somewhere. Anyway, so this was my passion, and I applied for the journalism course at Wellington Polytechnic. Back then, I believe there were maybe two courses in the country. That was the main one. And I got turned down. I was told that I needed to go away and mature and maybe reapply in five years. Wow. Uh, yeah, that I needed to be, I don't know, broader. Worldly. 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 Yeah, so despite the fact that I'd already done a lot of travelling, obviously, um, and I was very disappointed. And really as a backup to that, I decided, well, my other love is understanding people's psychology, human psychology. So I went to Auckland Uni and I thought, right, I'm going to be a psychologist. So I did, uh, I completed my bachelor's degree in psychology, um, 
found it really very disappointing. It wasn't at all what I wanted to be doing. You know, at a ba- at a bachelor's level at that time, it was very, very um, behavioral psych focused. So we used to just, all the papers, we'd spend hours in the lab with pigeons or rats and Skinner boxes, you know, pressing levers 10 times to get a grain of wheat and writing it up, all this operant conditioning stuff. So I completed that. But what actually changed the direction of my life was in my last year at uni, I got very sick with um, a chronic fatigue type condition. Oh, dear. And back then I knew nothing about holistic health. I knew I, I, I didn't know anything about there being other models of healing. And so I went through the medical system with doctors. Um, I think I saw a specialist somewhere along the way. They basically couldn't find anything wrong with me. All my blood tests would come back normal. Um, and so I was. it was kind of inferred that, you know, it was a bit sort of in my head. And I had a part-time job in work calls. And the, the woman I was working with said to me, why don't you go see my naturopath? And I was like, you're what? What's, what's a naturopath? So long story short, I went to see her naturopath. Um, who was one of the old stalwarts, long since dead now, but a, a man called David Duggan, who uh, was one of the leaders of naturopathic medicine in New Zealand at the time. And David did some fairly basic stuff. He looked at how I was living. I was a typical uni student. I was burning the candle at every end. I was living on caffeine and and sugar and crap food and not getting enough sleep and stressing out with exams. You know, I was just a typical uni student that didn't know how to look after myself. And so he taught me how to look after myself. He put me on some basic herbs, some basic supplements. I did a two-week detox diet at the beginning. And basically, I'd been unwell for almost a year. And within six to eight weeks of starting his program, I, uh, I was you know, I'm 90% recovered. I had my energy back um, and I was able to complete my degree. I traveled for a year. And during that year, it, we before we came on air today, we talked about synchronicity. But during that year, I, I traveled in Europe and over and over again, I would be sitting on trains and I'd start talking to the person in the carriage and they were a naturopath or an osteopath or a homeopath, and I just kept meeting all these people from this whole different, you know, form of healing. So I came back after my travels, and it changed the course of my life. I decided to train as a naturopath, um, which I did, and I started practicing, and then I so went just, back to but just Sorry uh, yep. to interrupt. What does training in those days as a naturopath involve? So I went to the South Pacific college in Auckland Um, and in terms of actual curriculum hours at the school it was a part-time course I think I was there for about 20 hours a week Um, but then in terms of actually completing the course it was a full-time course there was a lot of you know assignments and research to do and And that that was college solely to do with naturopathy or was it yes yes yeah so um, just training naturopaths 70 of us enrolled, uh, and by the time we graduated, the end of the three and a half years, I think 12 or 14 of us graduated. Tough so course. there were 
Yeah, so there was a huge culling in the first six months of people realising it wasn't what they wanted to do or it was harder than they expected or whatever. Um, so I did that and started practising as a naturopath. So and what year I, did you start practising as a naturopath? Oh, gosh, I think it was 1987. Okay. Thinking back. Um, you know why I'm saying, doing this? Why? You're trying to work out. I can tell you how old I am, right? No, I know you are. You're 61. <laughs> this is for the movie. Oh. <laughs> so when they come to make the movie of the madness of COVID and the heroines and heroes, we've got you. Oh, that's so funny. Thanks, Rodney. I need Jamie Lee Curtis to play me because I've just had my hair cut just like It'd Jamie Lee Curtis. It'd have to be Curtis. a young Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> When I she love was her. good. Yeah. Oh, I love her too. I love yeah. her. But she's I especially got, love her hairstyle. Yeah, and she's got some crazy political views, but she's Hollywood, so what do you expect? Yeah. But, um, I love that movie, True Lies, with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Which movie? True Lies. I don't know if I know that movie. It's a boy's movie. Really. Okay. Yeah. No, I don't know. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger's in it. Oh, but, right. My husband would like that. I, yeah, I don't and, and they're, that a, they're a, a couple, and he's a boring, the, the plot is that he's got a very boring job when in actual fact he's a, a super spy and superhero, and then she ends up in his world. Um, um, and she wishes he had someone, she wishes her husband was a bit more exciting. And of course, he turns out to be the most exciting man in the world fighting terrorists. But it's she's great in it. She makes the movie. I'm going to write that down so I can um, I can find that and watch her true she's lies. Like Meryl Streep. She's just on screen. There's nothing mm -hmm. to beat her. Anyway, this is Jamie Lou Curtis. Tick. We'll get her. You know, we'll get. We'll get her. Like we'll her. sign her up. Yeah. Um. So carry on. 1987. You start practicing as a naturopath. And how does that work? What do you just open an office and put out a shingle? Basically, yes. And people come to you. Well, what happened was at that time, I was very low key to begin with. And I was just seeing a few people from my home. And then I got another health challenge that I, uh, after I'd been practicing about 18 months, I decided I would go to an acupuncturist. I'd never had acupuncture in my life. And I went to a traditional Chinese acupuncturist and it was miraculous. The response to the treatment was amazing. So I, being the perpetual student, thought, wow, imagine if I put together all of this mm. knowledge that I've mm. now got for about you know naturopathic healing. Imagine if I trained as a traditional Chinese acupuncturist as well and I put the two together. And so that's exactly what I did. I then did a three-year um, diploma, diploma in traditional Chinese acupuncture. Whereabouts? Um, so back then it was in Birkenhead and back then we didn't have any kind of funding. You know, it was just a private college that you couldn't apply for government funding, NZQA or anything like that. Now it's really big in New Zealand. You can mm. you can apply for funding and there are several large colleges. But way back then um, it was quite new on the ground in New Zealand. And so I completed that and then I found the office and the shingle and really got into it. So my first business premises was um, two, two little rooms in a waiting room um, above a health food shop in Browns Bay, in the main street of Browns Bay. And I had a sign made 
and bought my towels, paid for, um, I think, a month of little tiny run-on ads in the North Shore Times. Remember the little ads, yes. you know, with no pictures or anything? Um, and just sat there and waited. And it was incredible because there was nobody else. I had this huge catchment area with no traditional Chinese acupuncturists. And certainly, even to this day, it's a rarity to find somebody who is both a naturopath and an acupuncturist. Mm. Um, and so my business built incredibly quickly. I, I anticipated that I'd be struggling for months, but probably within three to four months, I was paying all my overheads and, and drawing an income from it. Um, and, and so I would come to you and say, um, Linda, I'm not feeling well. Um, I've got chronic fatigue in the sore ankle. And you could do everything. You could do lifestyle, diet, um, supplements, herbs, uh, fermented products, and you could also apply acupuncture. Yep, that's right. Like a one-stop shop in terms of holistic health anyway. What I, what I did right from the beginning, Rodney, that was quite unusual, um, and again is even unusual to today, I made the decision to, to niche my practice into women's health Yes. And so while I have seen, you know, I used to, I'm retired from clinic now, but but right up until retiring, I did used to see men, but they were always the minority. Maybe I had two or three male patients at any one time, um, you know, in active treatment and the rest were all females. And I specialized in every aspect of women's health. So all of the hormonal issues, mm. menopausal transitions, and then in the, the latter half of my career, I, I moved in a big way into maternity care, worked with several um, uh, collectives of midwives. So I used to uh, work with couples with infertility mm -hmm. and then care for the woman right the way through the pregnancy, uh, right through to the birth preparation, not the actual birth, but preparing for the birth. Um, and yeah, I loved my career. I just, I absolutely loved it. Good for you. And I can understand, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine being a woman and um, going off to a male doctor and talking about, you know, things that you're very uncomfortable to talk about with, you know. Um, so I can imagine that being wonderful. Um, well, that's so, you're more amazing. Um, and you got married and had children. I did. I got married. I had uh, two daughters. Um, one is 27 and the other is 32 now. Mm. Um, and my first marriage didn't, didn't go the distance. And so then I got remarried. I had quite a lot of years single mothering. Um, and then I got remarried 14 years ago. And this one is going to go the different, go the distance. Isn't that yeah. wonderful? I'm it's very amazing. blessed to have a wonderful man. Mm. Well, he must be because you have been um, busy. So take us then, what happened up to the COVID pandemic? You you were still in Browns Bay. How did you get out of Browns Bay and the practice? When did that all happen? Yes, yeah, so I wasn't actually I wasn't actually in Browns Bay. I did move my clinic oh, around. Birkenhead, sorry. Yeah. Um, no, I trained in Birkenhead yes. for the acupuncture, but um, I had about five years in, in Browns Bay and those were in proper commercial you know, offices. Yes. And then I thought to myself, why am I doing this? Why am I paying all these overheads to be 
you know, in a commercial center because I had a really well-established business by then. And so from then on, for the rest of my career, basically I worked from home. Right. I always chose homes that had, you know, like a basement um, flat part or a, or a self-contained studio in the garden, um, and I worked from home. And so right up to COVID, that, that's what I was doing. I was, uh, you know, working in my, in my practice. I was working full time. Um, it was a busy practice. I've always been a sole operator. I, I've always, you know, worked on my own, basically, in, in a clinical space. Um, and I was seeing about 35 to 40 clients a week. So, I mean, it was a, a real full time. And I, I had a parallel career, which I haven't mentioned yet, but because that that burning love in me of communicating and writing, I decided when when I got into natural medicine and I was unable to be a journalist, was actually at home on, on the maternity leave side of things with my first child. And I was finding it really challenging just being at home with a small baby. And one day I, I had an old typewriter and I decided that I would just write a thousand word article on um, a particular woman's health condition. And, you know, I literally typed it out on paper, put it in an envelope and sent it to New Zealand Women's Weekly. And I just said, do you want this article? You know, would you like to buy this article? And they bought it. Wow. And I thought, wow. Okay. And it was an old-fashioned typewriter? It was an old-fashioned typewriter. It was before computers. We didn't have computers. Um, you know, complete with twink. I used to twink things yeah, out yeah, yeah. as well. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, and they paid me for it. So I thought, I'm going to try that again. And so I sent them another one and they bought it. And effectively, that was the start of my parallel career as a health writer. And um, that was a, a, another career that I loved. So I was a columnist for lots of uh, newspapers and magazines in New Zealand and Australia for 35 years, um, freelancing and also having regular columns as well. Did you, I'm fascinated by this because I went right to university and could never write. And I ended up sitting down and literally teaching myself to write. Well and done. I, I read, I was told that, it, and it was a huge struggle, right? A huge struggle to learn just to write clearly, you know, without, I used to just, I think as you're at school, you get put in front of a blank page and told to write about something. And I, mine would just go blank. Right. And I realized that you've got to have something to write about before you sit down to write. You know, you can't, you can't just, oh, I'll write something. Yeah. And um, and then that effort to write clearly and well, to me, I had to really, really study it. And then someone told me that the way to really, a good writer told me the way to really write was to write a column because you can't muck about. You write an 800-word column or a 1,000-word column or a 500-word column and you really learn. You've got to grab the reader and hold their attention rather than writing a book or a thesis or, you know, an academic paper. And so I became a columnist too. And I used to really mm. struggle with it. But at the end of it, I became quite good. But it didn't come easily to me. But here you are just firing off a thousand words. Did were you a, Do you consider yourself a gifted writer? 
I actually do, Rodney, and I don't yeah. say that in a in a big-headed way because all of us have giftings, right? Yes. And for whatever reason, mine has been writing. And um, the way that I write, like when, when I was a columnist, for example, um, some of the columns I had were weekly columns. So the deadline would come around, <laughs> you know, every seven days you had to send the yes. next column in. Um, and the way that I did that was I've never been... I've never been a structured writer like planning and doing, you know, pricey or a flow chart. That's not how I ever write. So when I had a weekly column, I would spend six days while I was walking, just contemplating, or while I was in the shower, just letting exactly. thoughts just run through my brain. Exactly. And and I, I my brain would just throw out lines, a line of something. And I think, yes. oh, that's good or it would write the opening paragraph while I was having a shower. Yeah. And it's not that I wrote it down. I just let my brain do that. And then on the sixth day, ready to submit on the seventh day, I'd just sit down at the computer and it just would flow through me. It just that's flows where, out of my fingers. That's where, um, I, en that's where I ended up. Yes. And, and then, it's, it, you almost people... feel like you're, you're channeling it in some way. It's, yeah, it's obviously you're... coming from you, but. And when people say to you, how long did it take you to write that column? I'd end up saying 40 years. <laughs> That's a great answer. You Love know that. what I mean? Yeah. Because you might have written it in 30 minutes or, you know, and then gone back a day later and refined it. But you've been thinking about things, you know, and and it's, I think I, I had a terrible thing happen to me at school because I'd always get a blank page and ask to write an essay on something, you know, like what did you do at the weekend? And you start writing without actually having anything to write about yeah. because you've got to have something to write about. And that's the work. And you literally do that in the shower, lying in bed at night or going for a walk. But I find I can't think in front of a blank piece of paper. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm yeah, the same. I can't I can't sit down and just structure. And even now with all the the work I my writing in the health forum, it 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 just comes out of me. Yes. You know, obviously I source things and I put links yes. in, but the actual writing just sort of flows through. Yes. Now I want to now so you're doing this parallel thing. And where were you when COVID hit? Physically and work wise? Uh so uh we were living in Torbay in Auckland. And I was practicing. I had a clinic. Um, yes. I was actually working from my home. Yes. So it was part of your, your doing your career. Oh yeah, I was writing and and I was seeing patients and and yeah. then and then what happened? Well, uh then COVID arrived in the world and I was frightened. I was really frightened when I when I watched that first coverage from Wuhan and, you know, those opening clips of people just walking down the road and then collapsing dead on the road. Um, and they I were was, fake, we now know, right? Oh, they were fake because who does that with COVID? No. I mean, have you no. known anybody? Well, no. I mean... Later on, people collapse yes. with sudden deaths, but that's not COVID. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so I was frightened at first. Uh, so 
then of course quickly internationally attention turned to the great vaccine you know there, there was going to be a vaccine or several vaccines that were going to save the world um, and so because of my background I was very interested in this because as a health researcher and writer I had written on other normal vaccines I'd done a series of articles on Gardasil um, you know, and I'd written about childhood schedules and MMR and things like that in the past. So I knew what was involved in developing a real vaccine. And I couldn't for the life of me no. work out how we were going to get this COVID vaccine from, you know, just the first time they spoke about it until it, into people people's arms. And they were talking about less than 18 months. As it turned out, it was one year, but... I couldn't see how that was humanly possible no, same. to produce a safe vaccine, let alone an efficacious one. I was really concerned about how safe is this thing going to be? So I started watching the development and then it arrived in countries uh, a long time ahead of New Zealand. So Israel, of course, you know, they became the, the test population for the world Um America had a big rollout. UK had a big rollout ahead of New Zealand. Uh, and so I started following, started looking at not, not Israel, but America. I started looking at the VARS database, which is their pharmacovigilance over there. And in England, the yellow card system, which is both the equivalent of MedSafe, you know, calm reporting here. And really quickly, it became apparent that there was a problem very quickly within a couple of months uh and this is and official so, this is official channels like this yeah well this is government data this yeah. is yeah, government data that's the signal right. was there immediately the signal was there in the first 30 to 60 days mm. um and so then of course my my concern and my interest was peaked because i was thinking well, hang on a sec, if I can see there's a problem, well, hang on, what, you're rolling it out to the world like everybody's going to have it, but have you looked at the yellow card system? Why aren't you looking at the VARS data? What's going on? So I knew from that that this was no ordinary, inverted commas, pandemic and no ordinary, inverted commas, vaccine. Um, and so that's really where my work of the last two years started. I, I, there's a leap there, right? Because how did you go from realizing that to your work? That for two years? Uh, so I was just privately researching it. I started following different people, um, you know, on Twitter and different platforms. And I, Right from the beginning, I was interested in um, the respected voices. I didn't. I didn't want to start paying attention to like social media influences and what they had to say. I wanted to hear what. Where were the doctors that were speaking about this? Where were the immunologists and the vaccinologists and the even just you know the G. So forgive me for saying just, but even GPs, you know, just mm. general practice people. Um, and so I started looking for those voices. And some of those voices were there right from very, yes. very early on. And 
Then it was New Zealand's turn. So I'd been watching for six months or more overseas, and then it was New Zealand's turn. And I felt great apprehension because before the injection even arrived here, back then it was only the Pfizer, and before it arrived here, I could tell from the the prelude, you know, the programming, the propaganda, the, the messaging that we were receiving 24 hours a day on all the platforms, that there was going to be no discussion about any of the stuff that I was seeing overseas from these respected voices and these pharmacovigilance databases. And so I watched it, the rollout started, and I was spot on. We only got one message, right? Safe and effective. COVID vaccines are safe and effective. And gradually, very gradually, well, no, not very gradually, within about three months or so of rollout, I became so frustrated with the fact that none of our mainstream media was covering anything about these experts that I was watching from overseas. Um, None of our MPs were asking any questions. Um, the MedSafe process was ridiculous. We can come back to that if you want to. But um, And so one day I was at home and feeling frustrated and I thought, right, I'm going to start a Facebook group and I'm just going to use it as a platform for me to do my ranty righty thing. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll get a thousand Kiwis that are interested in what I've got to say. So I started it. Just, just stop there, Linda. Yeah. Again, I apologise for interrupting, but had your normal writing channels dried up or something that sent you to Facebook? Yeah, so um, I had already finished my professional writing. I was not a columnist for anybody by this okay. time, and I was not doing any freelance writing. Non-COVID but, related. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I'd I'd stopped all that because I was getting older and I was working towards retirement before COVID arrived. Um, so the only writing I was really doing was I had another Facebook group, uh, yeah, very okay. gentle, quiet little space where I was writing. So I started this group. Um, I can't remember what I called it at the beginning, but it wasn't called the Health Forum NZ. Um, and it just rocketed. It went from nothing to 10 followers 20 followers 100 and just before you knew it, it there were just hundreds of people joining every day because I was an early outlier I mean yes absolutely. other people thank God other people joined me you know VFF brought their voices and Guy Hatchard NZDSOS and Dr Matt Shelton and lots of other voices joined me gradually over the months but right at the beginning I was the very first one and so because Kiwis had no other place to go, when they learned about me, they joined the health forum. So very quickly, we we survived on Facebook for 10 months before we were deplatformed. How um, many so followers did you have? at that We had 58,000 members wow. when, when we were deplatformed. And the analytics for our group, about 5,000 of those members were from overseas, you know, Europe, America, Australia. All the others were Kiwis. They were New Zealand people here. Um, and what was and the so, Facebook What was the Facebook doing? What were they doing? Yeah, what, what were you doing on the Facebook? What was, oh, what, what was I you, doing? Okay. Yeah. So right from the beginning, I and I still do this to this day, I 
I don't feel it's my place to tell people whether or not they should have a COVID vaccine. So what I stand for is fully informed consent. That's That's been on Twitter, that's what I tag everything, informed consent. And that's what New Zealanders were not and still are not receiving from our Ministry of Health, from our government speakers, from their doctors, from the vaccine hubs. We've never received a truly informed consent process for the COVID vaccine. So I started, first of all, giving Kiwis the information that they should have just been getting. Our Ministry of Health should have been telling them this stuff, talking about what I was seeing in the databases, the the range of adverse events, um, the unprecedented scope and variety of adverse events, the seriousness of them, the number of deaths, post-vaccine deaths that were being reported, unprecedented, like nothing that had ever been seen with any other vaccine. Kiwis didn't know any of this stuff. They were only told safe and effective. So I was putting that kind of information in there. And then, of course, as the rollout, um, you know, progressed in New Zealand, of course, we had thousands and thousands of vaccine-injured Kiwis right here in our own country. I didn't have to look at American databases. They were right here. And so those people were shunned, rejected, gaslit, you know, not believed by friends, family, the medical system. And so basically we provided a, we were a closed group. You had to apply to join so we could screen people before they came in. And we also meant we could kick people out and block them, you know, if they were trolls. Um, And so we created, myself and an amazing small team of female moderators, five or six moderators and myself, we created this beautiful, incredibly safe, empathetic, nurturing, safe space. It became a mental health refuge for so many people. And many, many of the hundreds and hundreds of emails and messages I've received in the last two years are New Zealanders saying, I literally would not have survived without the health forum. It's been my refuge. It's been my place where I could really talk about what's happened to me, where people would believe me. Um, we've, we've just had beautiful, kind, caring, compassionate people, not, not just our team, but the actual um, group members embraced each other, supported each other. We, we worked really hard from the start to create a culture a culture of caring and compassion. I almost don't want to use that word kindness because it's been, you know, used and it's been misappropriated by our ex-prime minister. Um, But it was a caring, compassionate space. So people came to the one place where they felt heard, validated. And then obviously, you know, we'd put posts up saying things like, um, share your experience, what happened to you after your COVID vaccine. And we would get some of our threads, we we actually got so that we had to turn off a lot of our threads because we couldn't moderate all the threads. We'd put a question like that up and we'd get in 48 hours, 2,000 2000 responses. So we'd have to turn the thread off because then we would have started a new thread with a new question with another 2,000 responses. So we started then. Just to interrupt, Linda, 
these were people who were injured, disabled, yeah, very badly affected, and health professionals and friends and family wouldn't believe them. Correct. Not always. Not always. In a minority of cases, they were lucky that that people, friend, loved ones believed them or their doctor believed them. But the vast majority, um, because, you know, ordinary people, not, not doctors and medics, but friends and family, think about it. They were being told by res- respected experts, our Ministry of Health, you know, Ashley Bloomfield, the, our wonderful Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, that everybody thought was saving us from Armageddon, they were being told that this was safe and effective, that there was no risk other than a sore arm, maybe a fever for 24 hours, maybe a mild headache, and that was it. So imagine being a part of a family where the propaganda has prepared you for only that eventuality. And 10 people in the family have their jabs and seemingly are fine. And the 11th member of the family has the jab and 48 hours can't, 48 hours later can't walk or is rushed to hospital in an ambulance two days later with catastrophic chest pain. Well, it's easy for the rest of the family to be convinced that it's got nothing to do with the vaccine. You were always going to be paralysed. It was completely coincidental that you had the injection 48 hours earlier. Yes, and they have just the experience of the one. Yes. And also, too, I suspect that phrase that can be overworked, there is a cognitive dissonance because if you accept that that family member or friend has been injured by the vaccine, if you accept that, a whole lot of stuff has to follow. Yes. Because you then have to conclude that the government and our parliament was lying to you. You then have to conclude that the medical fraternity can't be trusted. You then have to accept that your own health and the health of your loved ones may have been likewise compromised. And that is such a big jump it's that huge. your mind can't quite take it in. Yeah. I mean, I struggle, I struggle with it yeah. still. And, of course, it's very easy then to stay conspiracy theorist. And I think, spot on, Rodney, and I think of all of those reasons that you put out there for the cognitive dissonance, I think the most powerful one by far is vaccinated COVID-injected people struggle to acknowledge the serious harm because they have taken the injection. Mm. And when I talk about, and when, you know, voices much greater than mine talk about this, the real scientists talk about um, that we don't know what the long-term consequence of this is you know that we we do now know that the lipid nanoparticles carrying the mRNA code go everywhere in your body and by the way New Zealand MedSafe and Australian TGA 
knew that when they authorised the Pfizer vaccine. We now have the evidence. We've got the OIAs, the documents. They knew that at the same time that they were telling everybody, and to this day they're still telling everybody, that the contents of the injection stay in your deltoid muscle in your shoulder. Oh, and it just goes away after a few hours. Yeah. Um, it's scary to look over that precipice, isn't it? And to realize like it does the level of betrayal is so huge. Well, it's it creates it creates a very destabilizing world to live in because yes. here you are, you know, as you just you good average Kiwi, just living here, you know, in paradise in a country where we've always basically trusted our government and basically yes, they've looked, the government's basically looked after us. You know, we haven't really done it hard compared to a lot of countries. And we have an opposition and a press to hold them to account. Right. <laughs> and they're in lockstep. Now, tell me, you had 50 over 1,000 Kiwis in this private safe space on mm. Facebook and then you said you were deplatformed what was the process there yeah so so just going back to the makeup of our group so a lot of them were vaccine injured but then of course mandates came in so a lot more people joined us who were mandated out of jobs so so our entire group population were basically traumatized people they lost their job or they were vaccine injured or bereaved, or both. They were vaccine injured, declined a medical exemption, and then lost their job. So there was a huge amount of trauma. So that was just clarifying the makeup of the group. Well, leading up to our deplatforming, Facebook had it out for me in the biggest way possible. So for many months, probably for the last four months, of our 10 months, um, Almost constantly, I was unable to post because they would give me a one-week ban or a four-week ban, or and I appealed every ban and they ignored the appeals. And so I continued to write the posts, but various members of my team would post them. And then in progressively your group, in, your in my group, in right. my group, they, they would post them as me. I was writing them, but they but they would post my content basically. But then of course they started getting band as well um and it was we our our bands were for things like um well early on I wrote about ivermectin well that got me a one-month ban that was before I understood you know what a hot potato ivermectin was an early outpatient treatment um I got another long ban for writing uh peer reviews it was a peer review trial looking at vitamin d and the fact that people with uh, high vitamin D levels are less likely to get COVID, less likely to get serious Ill, seriously ill from it or die or be hospitalized. So that earned a one-month ban. Um, I then put some information up about myocarditis before it was, you know, mainstream news that there was an association. Uh, that was another ban. Another one was for writing about zinc and the effect of zinc and supporting your immune system, no matter what the pathogen. 
Um, it's so ridiculous things, it, you know, and they were tagged misinformation and disinformation and rah, rah, rah. And so in the end, um, we just disappeared. I just got up one morning to post, as I do every morning, and we were gone, disappeared. All traces of it is gone off Facebook. I'm even now I'm gobsmacked. I've got no words. Yeah, well, big big tech. Um, what 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 came to light later, much later, uh, last year actually, through um, Chantelle Baker and an OIA that she did, came to light that the New Zealand government was actually in cahoots with Facebook. They there was a direct line of communication between our government and the, the you know the the top people in Facebook with our government requesting who should be removed from Facebook. So you can bet that one of the requests was that we take the health form away because there we were with real vaccine injured New Zealanders sharing their stories. That doesn't go with the safe and effective narrative and uh, you know the hundreds of millions of dollars of advertising on all the platforms. We were a big thorn in the side of the government. That's evil, isn't it? That's the very definition of evil. That yeah. is... That is... You lived a horror movie. Well, I lived a horror movie, but my horror movie was not a patch on the horror movies of tens of thousands of Kiwis who many of them are potentially permanently injured. Others will, you know, while they've recovered to some degree from their vaccine injury, they're never going to go back to what they were before they, they took the safe and effective. So they're living a horror story big time. How did you manage your own health and sanity first of all just reading these heartfelt stories from everyday kiwis who were suffering again i make the point not just the injury but to coin that phrase the gaslighting how did you keep your mental and physical health just reading it Oh, with with varying degrees of success. I, I'm I'm much better at it now, but my workload is a fraction of what it was at the height of that. You know, I mean, you can imagine with a community with nearly sixty thousand people, all of our communication channels were just like exploding every day, um, and and much of the communication was people, desperate people, asking for help. You know, my doctor won't give won't approve my ACC or ACC has declined me or you know I've I've been I've had a heart attack after my first dose and Ashley Bloomfield's turned down my exemption and so now I'm going to lose my job as a psychiatrist of 30 years or, or whatever just thousands of those messages all the time so how did I keep my health well I did get quite sick I mean it how can you not I got no, very burnt no. out and run down um Walking is my thing. I feel closest to God when I'm in nature. And so nature is my church. Um, so being on the beach or in the bush, uh, at the beginning of shortly after COVID started, we moved to a beautiful, beautiful home where we were so blessed to have ocean views and be surrounded by native bush. So that that was my sanctuary that, that held me up through it. Um, I've got an amazing husband who absolutely believes in this work, has sacrificed a lot for me to be able to do this. 
Um, and I've got beautiful friends and also the team that I had, you know, the, the health forum team, um, incredible women, like strong, determined, heroic, smart women. It has and been women, hasn't it? it well, yes, I, it, it has been women. Actually, we, we're pretty much an all-woman team. Um, but I've noticed that in my community too. It's not unique to the health forum that it's been a woman's led resistance. Yes, very much so. Very, very much so. Have you got a theory um, about that? Yeah, I have got a theory. And the theory is that um, traditionally and usually women are the uh, the keepers of the health, keepers of yes. a family's health. We're the ones, you know, that are uh, clued into what's happening with our children's health and taking them to the appropriate medical care. And, you know, men... Men are not great. This is generalizing, so apologies to any men that get offended, but generally men are not as tuned in to yes. health-related changes in their own body, and women and tend to yes. be the nurturers and the carers. And when a kid is sick, like that basic thing, it's they run to mum. And, um, God, I, I was, you know, when I was 60 and took sick, I'd still run to mum. And... Um, <laughs> Um, I miss her dreadfully every day, but if I'm feeling a bit under the weather, I miss my mum who passed away because yeah. she would care for me. And if it was dad, I'd tell I'm all right. <laughs> That's right. That's just how it goes. Right? Um, you mentioned God. Is that the Christian God? Now, this is a great question, Rodney. And I'll be straight up and tell you that I don't know. And part of my process in this year, a uh, year of change that I've shared with you, um, is to create some time to revisit my own spirituality and my own connection with God. I, I, I was a you know traditional Christian for many years. I was in the worship band for many years. Um, in a Baptist church um, until about five years ago. And now my, I don't know that I fit back in that community. Mm. That's, that's the truth. So I still have a very strong faith, a very strong connection with, with God, with my creator, with a higher power. Um, I still pray. Um, I still ask for guidance, but I don't feel that I fit in a church anymore. Because the church are human-made, aren't they? Yeah, I don't want that filter between no. me and my my spirit, my my loving spiritual connection with God. I don't want the filter of no. man-made words standing between me. No, I think that's true, and I've tell share this with people. I've shared it. I've always been an atheist since I was seven and I have never felt closer to being a Christian again and believing in a superpower because um, this experience of evil and what's right and what's wrong yeah. and 
the failure of reason. I always believed in reason and numbers and evidence, and it's totally failed. Well, there is no reason in this, you know, and, and there's so and, and much, it, so much and, darkness in it. Yes, and you realize that reason is actually founded on a belief and an order and in, in the individual being special and sacred. And now we're like treated like cattle. Yeah. And just going back to the question you asked me, Rodney, about how have I looked after my health and how have I done this? I think if I boil everything down, what strengthens me is that I genuinely feel that I was called to yes. this world at this time, yes. in this place, as potentially the most important thing I've done in my life. Yes. And because I never sought this, I had no idea this was coming. I, I didn't choose this as a role for myself. And so because I feel that so deeply that it is like a spiritual calling to this work, I also feel strengthened and sustained by the same spiritual source. And so I've been protected. I have been um, guided. Um, I've been provided for in quite a miraculous way. And, and I know this is for a season. You know, this is not going to be my work forever. Mm. Um, and so you're for whatever a, reason. You're not been, alone. You're not alone in people that I've discussed this with, people that have stood up and gone beyond above, have felt that their whole life has led them to this place, that they've been yeah. guided to it, and that there is something looking after them. And yes, reason. I think I don't think you can really do this work no. in your own power. I, I no. certainly couldn't. It's not enough. It's not enough. And so fascinating. Now, this is extraordinary. We got to this extraordinary point where all the authorities from school principals and neighbours and family, whom we've all respected and loved and supported, are telling us, take the jab, take the jab, take the jab. The authorities, the government, the medical machinery, take the jab, safe and effective, safe and effective. You saw through your own investigation that that wasn't right. Before it arrived, nonetheless it arrived, and this huge psychological operation goes into place. The New Zealand Herald becomes the propaganda arm in every mainstream media yeah. to get everyone vaccinated for all our health. And because of that, every piece of dissent has to be quashed because public health overrides everything. Yeah. Right? And so you witnessed that. Then you saw people being injured and getting hurt and you create what you thought would be a modest little Facebook safe space and it blows up to over 50,000. And then, excuse me, bugger me, it's shut down. Then what? Well, we knew we were going to get shut down at some point because that's the modus operandi of big tech and censorship. So we knew eventually that was coming. We actually thought we did really well to hang in there for 10 months on, on Facebook. And so we started uh, some alternative platform groups 
we started a health forum group on MeWe and another one on Telegram so that we had two uh, relatively safe spaces that that we could all just jump into um, if and when Facebook got shut down. Uh, so we we grew those groups, but, you know, we lost a lot of our members in that transition. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't like going on, couldn't get on or couldn't handle the app or so uh, we lost members uh, in the transition. And then about four months ago, I think, I decided to dip my toe in the water on Twitter uh, once Elon Musk took over and um, supposedly, he's a, yeah, supposedly he's a champion of free speech. Yeah. So, um, And then, of course, what happened with Twitter is they've now, they've now gone to the ability to do long-form posts because I like, you know, my posts tend to be longer mm. form. Um, the ones I like doing anyway. So now I do long form posting over on Twitter and that's going quite well. And I've been amazed that I haven't had any problems over there with trolls or I think I've blocked like four people um, and we're we're almost up to 3,000 followers on Twitter now. Um, so that's pretty good going in terms of not being trolled. When you look ahead um so first up can you explain for me why it is that that example where in a family of 10 10 get the jab nine of them are fine and one is catastrophically injured why does it affect some people immediately some people later on, and some people seemingly not at all? That's a great question, Rodney. And it's a question I ask myself a lot. And I've also asked several of the doctors that I trust that are working in this space the same question. Um, I don't think we have a, I don't think genuinely we have a real answer. Um, one thing I would say is that there appear to be there appears to be a huge amount of variability between batches of product. Mm. So um, even within one family, not every family member necessarily gets uh, a vial from the same batch. They might, you know, one might go to the drive-through over there, one might go to the doctor, one might be living in Hamilton and you know get a different batch. And and when you look at the um, the correlations between the number of adverse, serious adverse events and deaths across different batch lots, there's a massive, massive variability. So that has spawned a lot of talk on um, internet platforms, um, you know, like uh, dark theories about Deliberate. potentially there are on purpose toxic yes. lots you know like kill shot lots the dr I, mike yeadon uh theory yeah yeah right i struggle with that personally i that's a step too far for my brain to yeah, i to... always feel that way with dr yeadon but then funny enough two years ago i'd say oh I, I love what you're doing mike but i think that's a step too far like but then we find ourselves there. So yeah. I'm open I, to a lot more stuff than I ever was. I know. I know, right? I believe so, the Prime Minister when she said we'd never have mandates. Uh, as I am. 
April Fool's Day. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, they'd never demand that a New Zealander carry a passport to get into a no. cafeteria. Double April Fool's Day. <laughs> Tell me. Um, yes, but of course, the other more simple explanation is just like everything about this vaccine was rushed in terms of the trials and the development and the approval, so too was the manufacturing process. Yes. To go from, like, I'm a baker and I can bake two loaves of bread a day and make beautiful loaves of bread. I couldn't scale up to make 20. I couldn't do it, let alone 1,000 or 10,000. It's always in scaling up problems arise and so the manufacturer of this drug went from went from zero to billions and then the transportation yeah the logistics and then goodness knows driving jab places and car parks you know that's right we 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 had this here in, in Queenstown, in Arrowtown, there's a drive-in over at Frankton. And I used to look at it, and people were just driving in there into a bloody car park under a sort of tent thing and having who God knows who they were roll up their arm, give them, stick them, and drive off. Yeah, 15 minutes sitting in your car, and then off you go. Go off to pack and oh, save I didn't see the 15 minutes even. Oh, really? No. And as you say, zero informed consent. Um, so there's a whole lot of places where this injury could be, or it could be the body, the terrain itself of the body. And, yeah, of and course, the terrain, that? the individual vulnerability. And yeah. and um, one of the things that I'm observing that's very interesting with the injuries that get reported to us is um, – there's a lot of reactivation of extremely old health problems that have been mm. resolved for many years. So, Like cancer. Like cancer, reactivation of cancer that was done and Normal. sorted 20 years ago and then, boom, within three months of a dose, it's back. And not only is it back, but it's back turbocharged. And, and often they're terminal cancers that go from diagnosis to death within six to eight weeks. It's quite unprecedented. Um, what do you think is going to happen over the next couple of years with all of this? I'm so excited. I have to tell you, I am so excited what I see in the world now. Um, I think the, the floodgates are opening and even fortress New Zealand with our censorship and our refusal by our authorities to tell the truth even Fortress New Zealand is going to fall to the truth with this one. And so the the first time in, in the two years I've been doing this work, I actually, I feel joyful and heartened that the truth is out. The truth is coming out. Yes. And 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 there's going to be hell to pay. The, the legal cases have started around the world. Um, there's just masses of evidence of fraud on the on the part of Pfizer and the one thing that will nullify this this seemingly impenetrable indemnity clause that they have in all their contracts is fraud 
and there's truckloads of it. And so I'm excited that we're going to see justice. Oh, I love you so much. You're giving me such cause for hope. And I, I mean, because I don't, I, I find wandering around, everyone's waking up and they know someone who's been injured. Yes. Everybody's waking up. That's right. And you've just got the to media look at haven't, that. haven't caught on. The politicians haven't got, they must, the politicians must be having some pretty miserable public meetings. I would, I hope so. I really hope so. Well, and what about you, Linda? What have you got planned? Oh, well, I guess this is a good place, a good place and time to let all my health forum members know what, what I've got planned. I know you know, Rodney, but um, I haven't I didn't yet... want to, you to reveal it, but if you yeah, feel no, this is a great this is a great time to tell everybody that um, basically what's happening is a few days ago, Hubby and I moved out of our home. We've bought a off-grid caravan and we're dedicating the next year to travelling New Zealand um, sometime off-grid and taking time out and other time doing public meetings, meeting health forum members, I'm going to be speaking and doing pop-up uh, vaccine awareness events. And I'm just so looking forward to meeting in person so many health forum members um, and VFF members and, you know, just awake New Zealanders. And also I hope I meet a lot of not yet awake, but ripe for the wakening up New Zealanders as well. Mm. Well, that sounds wonderful, and I, I love it because I've lost a lot of friends through COVID, sometimes them, sometimes me, um, been disappointed in a lot of people who I thought I would who would stand up for values and principle, especially my old party, the ACT Party, who disgusted me through all of this, uh, disgusted me because, you know, I felt an affinity for them. And yet, yeah. uh, at the same time, I've made just the best friends um, ever. And I've been inspired by local people and people like yourself. And so it's been so fabulous and enlightening and uplifting and spiritual too. Has it, I, the people, I, the people in the community are the silver lining to all yeah, of it, right? Haven't we yeah. met the most amazing people that yeah. we otherwise would never have come yeah. together with? And there's you, poor thing, being labeled a conspiracy theorist in a nutcase. Oh, I and think it's at, quite funny now. I, I know, me too. And I look at you, and that's why I wanted to share your background with listeners, because it is so wonderful. I mean, you know what you're talking about, you know? You are amazing. I can tell that you're wanting to get on your trip. I can tell that your dog's coming back. I can tell that <laughs> My dog and my husband are rattling around at the side your, of me, and I'm trying to your, wake your, them out. Your, your husband has walked and walked and walked himself, and now he wants lunch. Yes, and he I've does, quite kept, right. I've kept you at it, but Linda, I know I'm speaking on behalf of all our listeners and all of the people that you've touched and helped, and all the people that you're going to help that don't even know you yet. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And you are so extremely wonderful. How can people follow you? I'm talking to Linda Wharton. I should have kept saying that through this interview. She is on the road. Well, I will be soon. We're not quite yet on the road, but we'll be soon. How can people follow you online? 
Thanks, Rodney. Well, they can go to our website, which is thehealthforumnz.co.nz. Um, and on there, they'll find the links to our MeWe and Telegram groups. Uh, and then they can also join me on Twitter. So on Twitter, we're called um, NZ and the MRNA. So NZ and the MRNA is the name of our page. So you go um, NZANDMRNA. Yeah. yeah. Twitter. Well, I follow you on Twitter and I love it. And um, you do great posts and I do your telegram. Uh, funny enough, I don't go to your webpage. I maybe should do that. But uh, you're amazing. What I'd like to do is be a little soldier uh, in your battalion, of which I regard you as our general. And anything that I can do to help, you just have to say. And I want you on our on my show. I want to help the vaccine injured and I'll be guided by you to how we best can in my show because there's no way I want to abuse or disappoint them because we had an experience on the platform. We did. Where you organised the most amazing show with 12 vaccine injured guests and it disappeared yeah. and was never replayed and I felt I let those injured down who had spoken so personally and so honestly and I've never been back on the platform. Two reasons. I was never asked to come back on. And I would never go back on <laughs> because of that treatment of guests. No, none of us felt that you let us down, Rodney. Oh, I know you kind. you fought really hard to, to yeah, get well, that posted. That's very kind. So I don't. I will be guided by you, but I, I think it would be wonderful for as you're gaily traveling around New Zealand, meeting people, for you to think how best here at on my show and Reality Check Radio, we can help hasten in this beautiful new era of post-COVID where people realize that we have been so badly let down and fellow New Zealanders have been so woefully treated. Um, anything that we can do, Linda, um, it's wonderful. You're 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 a goddess, and um, I'm a mere mortal, Rodney. No, I'm a mere mortal. Oh, well, you, you know ask what my I mean. husband; he'll tell you I'm not. You a know goddess. what I mean. And while you mention your husband, thank him for sharing you with us, because um, um, he has had to go through this in even a harder way. Because I know what it's like for a loved one see a fellow loved one abused publicly. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. And funnily enough, the person taking the abuse can handle it, but a husband or a wife, it cuts them deeper. Mm. So your husband has not only lost you to the cause for large chunks of time and watched your health decline uh, through that process, but also had to witness you being abused publicly 
and by our government. So thank him for us. I will, Rodney. And I look forward to when you get to the South Island catching up with you and we've got a panic for you to park in. I can't wait. And just before we wind up, I just want to thank you, Rodney, on behalf of all of the mandated out, all of the vaccine injured New Zealanders. You have been just the source of amazing amounts of compassion, integrity. You're one of the few people with a public platform who've gone out of your way to share the stories and uh, believe the vaccine injured. So we're all deeply grateful and I look forward to continuing the, well, the conversation. That's very kind. I'm a happy soldier. And what I notice is it's just the truth, right? Yeah. It's just being honest. Just the truth. That's all we ask is just truth and honesty. And we want to hear the other arguments. We want to learn. We're not, a sh- not, we're not shutting anyone down. Um, anyone can come on this show and say, look, Linda was wrong about this or Rodney, you know, you've got this all screw if I'm happy to take their calls. I'm happy to have them on and I will be respectful. I'll be as respectful of any of them as I would be to you. Um, we'd ask tough questions, but I'd ask tough questions of you because what we need is dialogue, conversation and truth. Just mm-hmm. And when you're being shut down, you only shut someone down You don't shut down lies. No one ever shuts down lies because lies are easy to um, dismiss. Governments only ever shut down the truth. Truth, that's right. And so you only have to ask who's being shut down to know where the truth lies. Yeah, because that's what we say. You're over the target. If you get censored on something, you're (laughs) over the target. Linda, thank you for your time. That's Linda Warden from the New Zealand Health Forum. You're with uh, Reality Check Radio. It's Rodney Hyde with uh, Real Talk. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio.